Welcome to episode 8 of Down Home Fear, where we explore true crimes and strange happenings of the American South. My name is Keegan, and I am joined once again by Amy, who you may remember from our last episode. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so, uh, right off the top, I wanted to ask you, Amy, if you were able to come up with the most iconic crime of your lifetime. Okay, I did. Okay. So, don't know if this is controversial or cliche, um, but do you remember Elizabeth Smart? Yes. Okay. For those who might not have been in the U.S. at that time or, I don't know, didn't turn on the news, this was a girl who was kidnapped from her own home, taken uh, by someone who came in through her garage and stayed in the garage, but of course no one knew that, so she mm. was missing for months. Her picture was all over the news, um, and there was like a huge manhunt for her. I think it was in 2000. 2002? She was an early teenager at that time. Yeah, she was like 16. Yeah, and we were we were younger, like, I don't know, like nine at that time. I think. Yeah, this would have been in the early 2000s. Yeah, so that had a really big impact on me. And I also think that, like, national attention turned to that case. Mm-hmm. I think parents got really worried. Like, it caused a lot of attention to come towards, like, kidnapping. Um, so I think that that was probably the most impactful of my lifetime so far because we've only been around for about 20 something years so Uh we'll see what else pops up and there was also a weird thing with elizabeth smart involving uh like she lived with her captors for a couple of months Months. and uh someone had to approach her and ask if she was elizabeth smart and then she said yes because they were threatening to kill her and it was a man and a woman who Mm -hmm. kidnapped her the whole case I like. I'm sure there are several true crime podcasts. I, she's come out and spoken about her experience, right? Um, but I definitely like that is so incredibly memorable for me. Yeah, and terrifying. And, and there was also not to like editorialize too much on what you just said, but there there was a lot of controversy once she was found because people were like, "All right, you were living with these people for three months. It doesn't seem like or like however long it was, it doesn't really seem like they were forcing you to stay there against your." your will you know what what was really going on so there were like doubts about it and regardless of what did or did not happen or what like the true core of that whole debacle was it still made a really big splash on pop culture and just the mainstream consciousness about um kidnapping and and abductions and things like that yep so that's what i got because that that to me when i looked back and thought about everything that we had heard of or in our lifetime, that mm-hmm. was the one that popped out. So maybe it didn't impact, you know, other kidnappings. It right. Have. Um, but I think for the American consciousness at that time, like, that was um, pretty overwhelming. Yeah, definitely. Um, it may also help, uh, just for the listeners, uh, Amy and I are, are both, what, should we just say our actual yeah, we're, age? We're, we're 23. Yeah, we're 23 years old. We're born about like two weeks apart. So yeah. <laughs> we're pretty close yeah. together in terms of what um, what we remember from our childhoods and, and what seems to make a big impact. We so. also grew up across the street from each other. So <laughs> we've got a pretty similar background there. Yeah, we, uh, are, uh, we, we ran in the same circles, I guess. You could say that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I just wanted to follow up about that because uh, at the beginning of episode seven, I asked um, Amy what she thought the 
the most memorable or iconic crime from anywhere in the United States was. And I couldn't think it, of anything. Yeah, but that's all right. We, uh, so we've settled it. You said Elizabeth Smart. I said just kind of a general statement about spree killings. So in any case, let's, um, let's move on just a little bit further. And I wanted to follow up on something that we talked about kind of extensively about in episode seven, which was Todd Collip and the real estate license. Yes. Um, people who have listened to that episode will recall that both Amy and I were really confused about how Todd Collip was able to apply for a real estate license and get the license in 2006 when back in the 80s he had been convicted of um, kidnapping and he was on the sex offender registry, but he was not... Um, convicted of rape, even though that's what had occurred. Correct. Yes, he um, he did like a plea bargain, I believe, to remove the rape charge, and he only went to jail for kidnapping. But he was on the sex offender list, um, and he had lied about it to everyone in his town, saying like it was. I don't know. He had upset a girl's father because they they took a joyride. He yeah. He had like some weird explanation about how his like he was illegally possessing a firearm at the time that he the police questioned him and that like resulted in a kidnapping charge and everything was basically bottom line a big misunderstanding and you know he's a really stand-up fucking american i guess but anyhow so this is what happened i i did some digging around after the episode and it turned out that Todd Collip in 2006 lied on his real estate license application and the South Carolina State Department of Labor did not do their due diligence when granting him the license. So he actually did disclose that he had a felony, but he explained that it was, as we said in his words, a a misunderstanding involving the possession of a firearm and a statement that he had made to the police that had been misconstrued in some way. Uh, and in 2006, South Carolina did not actually require real estate agents to undergo full background checks. The policy has since changed as of, I think, May 2014. Wow, that's a lot later than I would have expected. Right, right. And so for these reasons, he just was kind of able to fly under the radar. He wrote a two-page statement and attached it to his license application And if you want to read his two-page statement and see the application that he submitted, it is available on the um, DHF website, downhomefear.com. You can see the, um, like, scans of the application he submitted. So it's kind of weird. I mean, it's got, like, his signatures on it and stuff. Obviously, some of his, like, personal identifying information has been redacted. But never, like, in any case, you can see in his exact words what he said had happened and how he explained the circumstances of that kidnapping charge. Um, let me see here. So, during his time as a real estate agent, uh, Kolhev wasn't actually convicted of any sort of misconduct by the state real estate board. Uh, he spent about 10 years working as a real estate agent and broker, but this doesn't mean that com- this doesn't necessarily mean that complaints weren't filed. It just means that he wasn't actually convicted of anything. So that's something to keep in mind. And also, I read really like mixed things because Amy, during your 
description of the story and everything, you said that like his colleagues all thought that he was a pretty like normal guy. I, they described him as smart, mm-hmm. um, good at his job. One, I think one person said he was very nice. Um, yeah, yeah, and I found that too. So like his business associates seems to think that there was nothing really amiss about him. But then I also found statements from people who, I guess, visited houses that he was trying to sell and like he was showing them around the house, you know, as a real estate agent does. I read a... Um, statement from one of these people who had visited a house that he was showing and said that he was just like super weird to the point that she actually did contact the real estate board just to be like hey uh, this guy was making really weird comments to me he was giving me a really bad vibe I felt uncomfortable and I just wanted to notify someone about it and apparently uh, this is just what she said so I don't know if it's true or not but apparently the board was like yeah we're aware of this guy We've heard similar things about him in the past, um, but, you know, he's cleared, so don't worry about it. That's rough. Yeah, I mean, good on that woman for reporting when she felt uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, uh, if you see something, say something. Yeah, if you feel bad vibes, if you feel bad vibes, say something. Yeah, totally. Um, good find, though. You also posted it on the Facebook group, correct? Yeah, it's on the Facebook group. Uh, the link to the, um, the website and... All of that. So you can actually get the PDF version of the document so you can like download them and have a copy of your very own if you want. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was just really weird. And I kind of really, I don't want to say, I, I don't want to say I enjoy finding these things, but I think they're really interesting to read and look at. So whenever I find like original documents like that, I get kind of hyped and want to share them with people so um, it gives you a better insight into his mind right because he wrote yeah. the the document so yeah yeah and uh it's uh it's just pretty pretty uh i guess intriguing and disturbing to look at so to shift gears we're going to do a somewhat lighter episode today something that doesn't involve women who are chained up in shipping containers or children getting drowned or college students getting their throats slit you know the really light-hearted enjoyable topics we've covered for the last four or five weeks i guess at this point time for something a little lighter yeah we wanted to change it up it's still going to be offbeat it's still going to be weird and creepy but it's just not going to be like violent yeah super super violent um did you have anything you wanted to add before we i just wanted to say that if my voice sounds off it's because i'm a little under the weather so hopefully that's okay for you guys i hope it doesn't sound like nails on the chalkboard that's my fear (laughs) all right so um with that we'll get started with the first segment So segment one is going to be titled The Lost Nukes. That's the exciting title that I came up with for this uh, segment. I like it. All right. Cool, man. Tell me more. All right. Let me tell you about 
a little story from 1961. Uh, this happened in Goldsboro, North Carolina, and it's commonly referred to as the 1961 Goldsboro B-52 crash. So on January 23rd, around midnight, so the night of January 23rd to the 24th, a B-52 Stratofortress, which is one of those, like, gigantic uh, bomber planes that you... It's shaped like a triangle, right? Um, you know what I mean? Like, one of those black... Are you thinking about the stealth planes? Uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's not what these are. Just kidding. No, the Stratofortresses have, like, a really, really, like, wide, long wingspan. They're, like, these huge-looking bombers. They've been in service since, uh, I think, the 50s. Are they still active? Yeah, they're still active. Um, so, I mean, you may see them in um, at Air Force bases or in movies about conflicts from, you know, the Korean War all the way up to present day. But they're, in any case, uh, they're like these huge, long-range, jet-powered bombers. And this particular one was nicknamed Keep-19. And it was rendezvousing with a tanker for aerial refueling. So that's when a plane pulls up to a tanker plane. And in in midair, still flying, they, uh, they actually will use like a, uh, like a long tube to connect and refuel. So the plane doesn't have to land in order to be refueled. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. Technology is pretty crazy. America's pretty crazy. Go team. Go, go team USA. But, uh, anyhow, there was a mishap during this refueling and, to compound the issue, this uh, mark, or, I'm sorry, the plane was Keep 19. Keep 19 was also carrying two Mark 39 nuclear bombs. These nuclear bombs were 250 times more destructive than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Not a number you want to hear. Yeah, and they have a 17 mile 100% kill radius. So wait, how many miles? Seventeen miles. Okay, that's pretty big range. Yeah, it's like definitely gonna be a big problem if one of them were to say accidentally be set off. Do they also have a wide radiation range as well? Yeah, absolutely. So as with I guess any thermonuclear weapon, there is the kill radius, and then there's like the radioactive fallout after they're detonated, which can spread for yeah i guess i think like literally hundreds of miles um so it it, it's a really really uh huge issue if one of them is to be set off accidentally or intentionally but i'm not here to debate politics right fair enough (laughs) all right so the commander of the b-52 major walter scott tullock notified the tanker that there was a fuel leak and the uh, refueling was aborted Basically, during the refueling, they noticed that there was uh, fuel, jet fuel, like spraying all over the place and that it it was too dangerous to continue attempting the refueling. They notified the uh, ground control and they were told to engage in a holding pattern, which is pretty much you fly in circles until the majority of the fuel that was in the tanks had burned off. And then at that point, they could safely land and make repairs and everything would be... Is it unsafe to land if there's a leak and... Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm not a pilot, but I would imagine if the fuel is leaking and all that, it's probably not... 
a good thing. It probably yeah. complicates the whole uh, process of of landing and, and all of that. Makes sense to me. Right. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, once the B-52 entered the holding pattern, Major Tullock reported that 37,000 pounds of fuel had drained in just three minutes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so at this point... They uh, attempted an emergency landing at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, uh, again, uh, in North Carolina. But they lost control of the plane at about 9,000 feet. And as the, they're beginning this like really rapid descent, the right wing of the plane is actually ripped off. That's terrifying. Yeah, and the crew had to eject from the plane. Five men bailed out and landed safely. Good. One man bailed out but was killed in the process. Sad. And then two men were unable to bail from the plane and uh, died in, in the crash. So the plane basically, as it was plummeting toward Earth, disintegrated and like fell apart in like just like thousands of feet in the air. Just so everybody knows, I'm terrified of flying. So this is a really, like, it was already a nightmare, but I think <laughs> listening to the details of a plane disintegrating is terrifying. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Uh... It's okay. This is very interesting and sad, but interesting. Right, right. So um, the B-52 fully broke up at about 2,000 feet before the impact, and the two Mark 39 nuclear bombs were released. So they just kind of fell to earth. One of them, the parachute, they have like, they called it a retard parachute to, yeah, I know, but to uh, slow the descent of the bomb. And that one deployed and it actually landed like relatively safely on the ground and got caught in a tree. I'll post, I might post a photo of that on the website. That's nuts. Yeah. And so there's like this huge bomb. One of them's caught in the tree, but the other one actually just like went full speed into this uh, farmer's uh, field and was going 700 miles an hour upon impact and actually buried itself uh, like about 120 feet underground. Okay, one question, because I don't know anything about bombs. I thought when it dropped, it was, you know, set off once it had impact. Do they have to be like officially set off by another device? They have to be like armed and there's like some fail-safe processes to prevent accidental detonations from happening. That's great to hear. But unfortunately, three out of the four arming mechanisms on um, one of the bombs activated and caused it to execute many of the steps needed to arm itself. This was the bomb that had landed safely with the parachute and that got caught in the tree. But uh, so even though it had landed kind of like relatively softly, as far as all things are concerned, it, it still managed to be just like one step away from detonating itself. The second bomb that fell in the the parachute wasn't deployed and it hit at full speed, essentially disintegrated upon impact. And they attempted to excavate it because even though it hadn't detonated, neither the conventional nor the nuclear payload of the bomb had detonated, there was still most of the thermonuclear stage um, just like 
chilling underground and obviously you can't be good yeah you can't just have a um partially destroyed thermonuclear device sitting underneath some farmer's like cornfield or whatever it happens to be and they spent about two weeks attempting to excavate it and fully remove the bomb but due to uncontrollable groundwater flooding they weren't able to fully get it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. They they uh they were able to remove uh part of the bomb, but they weren't able to remove uh the uranium core. So the ura- so the plutonium core of the bomb was removed, but the uranium part of the bomb is still intact and just like about 120 feet underground in this uh field in north carolina you mean it's still there right now yeah it's still there they never got it out they didn't go back and try to get it i guess they couldn't because of the groundwater flooding (laughs) i wish you could see amy's face right now i feel like they definitely should have gotten it right i feel like that's not safe well yeah it's not safe but like what are they you know we're not gods as much as we try to be we can't stop groundwater flooding bro i feel like technology (laughs) is such at this point where they could definitely find a way around that okay so amy's message to engineers living in america figure this shit out please get this out of the ground (laughs) if the nuclear fallout is hundreds of miles and this is in north carolina it could impact but i don't i don't think there's any chance of like a nuclear explosion happening because they they got the like plutonium core out and i guess you need the plutonium and the uranium but there's still radiation from it, right? Yeah, but according to the government, there's actually not any radiation in that field. Okay. So, I mean... Well, <laughs> that's fine. I guess people can draw their own conclusions on what to believe on, on that one. Uh, but yeah, I think that it's relatively safe. There's this uranium core out there. It's buried, um, but there's no way that like one day it's just going to ex- explode. That makes me feel better. But I mean, we could fast forward like 30 years and it's like suddenly like Goldsboro, North Carolina, nuclear explosion. <laughs> Terrible. Ah, thanks to the 60s. Thank you, Cold War era. Yeah, right. The, but I have a question about all of this. The You said that on the bomb that landed in the tree. Mm-hmm. Three out of four of the fail-safes happened? Yeah. Did they release information about how that happened? or what? Actually, the according... I'm so glad you brought that up. That's a perfect segue. I'm here the, to help. The military, at the time that this happened, it was public... It, like, it was in newspapers and stuff. Uh, my I asked my grandfather about this, actually, just, like, a day ago. And he was like, oh, yeah, I totally remember when that happened. And I was like... So he was like... He said that they didn't try to make it... Uh, they didn't try to like cover it up or hide it because they couldn't because people knew that there had been this crazy plane crash and everything just in the middle of this farm and they um they told people what had happened and that the nuclear bombs had fallen but they were never at any risk of exploding and they maintained this publicly um for for years and years but recently classified documents have emerged and the um the story appears to be a little bit more complicated than that. 
And it's not just the classified documents, but also the expert testimony of military personnel who were present at the scene. So there's a guy named Lieutenant Jack Ravel, and he is the guy who disarmed the first bomb. And he's the one that landed in the tree. And he said, as far as I'm concerned, we came damn close to having a Bay of North Carolina. Oh my gosh. <laughs> there was a... Uh, another guy, Parker F. Jones, who was actually the supervisor of nuclear safety at Sandia National Laboratories. And if you don't know what that is, it's a firm that helps design and develop nuclear weapons, courtesy of Lockheed Martin. And in a 1969 report, he said that one simple low voltage switch stood between the United States and a major catastrophe on that uh, first bomb that fell. This report, just as a side note, was titled Goldsboro Revisited, or How I Learned to Mistrust the H-Bomb, which was apparently a spoof on Stanley Kubrick's classic film, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. All right. So it's good to know that they have a sense of humor about all this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, the Bay of North Carolina comment is terrifying. <laughs> I know, right? Um, so, yeah, the the three out of four fail-safes on that first uh, bomb that fell, uh, they they failed. The, the fail-safes failed. And the bomb was basically armed. Uh, the only thing to prevent an accidental detonation was uh, just a simple... Um, a simple safety mechanism that easily could have been triggered by an electrical short in uh in parker f jones's words it would have been bad news (laughs) understatement of the century that's what he said to congress (laughs) (laughs) in his report Yeah, it would have... Oh my god, sorry, I just was like screaming into the mic. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it would have been bad news, homie. I agree with you. If these bombs had detonated, an estimated 28,000 people would have been killed. And another 26,000 injured. And I think it's safe to say it would have completely changed the course of history for the United States. I mean, this was at the height of the uh, um, nuclear tensions between Russia or the USSR and the uh, United States. And there was the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis not too much later that same year. So, I I mean, this just, I I can't imagine how much that would have just screwed up the mid-Atlantic region. And, I mean, North Carolina is a major agricultural hub so that would have caused issues basically my expert analysis of this leads me to believe that uh a nuclear bomb being detonated in the united states would not be a good situation would you call it bad news i would (laughs) i would say it qualifies as bad news all right you're on the same page But this actually isn't the only time something like this has happened. and that's... Not what I wanted to hear you say. <laughs> there's actually over, uh, from 1950 to 1967, there's about 20 separate incidents kind of of this nature where either a plane crashed while carrying a bomb or a bomb had to be jettisoned uh, or a like manufacturing mishap occurred of some sort. 
One of them actually occurred in 1958, just a couple hundred miles further south from Goldsboro, North Carolina, and it's called the Tybee Island B-47 crash. So this was on February 5th, 1958, just off the coast of Savannah, Georgia. A B-47 bomber, which uh, just so you can picture it, is kind of, I would describe it as like a retro, futuristic looking plane. I'm thinking of in World War II, the planes that they flew. Is that an accurate note? No, it didn't look like that. It had kind of like, uh, when you see like newspaper clippings that have like photos of what they imagine the future will look like or whatever meet george jetson yeah yeah like kind of like a jetson's sort of okay that's so like that's what i consider retro futuristic looking it's a good description okay (laughs) thanks so anyway uh same sort of deal though i mean it, it was smaller than the stratofortress but it was a turbojet bomber that was designed to fly at high altitudes and carry nuclear bombs so this B-47 bomber was carrying a Mark 15 nuclear bomb, and it collided with a F-86 fighter plane during a uh, training exercise. The pilot of the F-86 safely bailed out pilot, uh, prior to the collision. That's good. So, right on. But after the collision, the B-47 was very heavily damaged, and the plane's crew um, actually requested permission to jettison the bomb. <laughs> Into the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, my God. Uh, specifically, the Wausau Sound, which is just off the shore of Tybee Island. So um, they jettisoned this fucking bomb into the ocean. And they, uh, the crew reported not seeing any sort of explosion upon it impacting into the sea. So that's good. A plus. A plus. Um... The crew safely landed at Hunter Air Force Base, and the pilot, Colonel Howard Richardson, received the Distinguished Flying Cross for his handling of the incident. He landed a flaming, heavily damaged B-47. Okay. Okay. He's a hero. That's awesome. (laughs) But there's actually... um, So, here, I do have some good news, though. Uh, Despite this bomb ostensibly just being shot into the ocean and being there forever because they but a side note they were never able to recover it uh but there's mixed info regarding whether or not the mark 15 nuclear bomb was actually armed and if it had like the components in it to make it able to explode i read sources saying that it just had a war a lead warhead for training purposes and the Air Force maintains that the bomb's nuclear capsule was re- removed prior to the flight. But according to a 1966 congressional testimony by uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense, uh, or the Assistant Secretary of Defense at the time, the bomb carried that day was a complete weapon. Uh, this is a quote from him. A complete weapon, a bomb with a nuclear capsule. So I feel like I would probably believe that because it's so close to... The time period when it happened. And also, why would the Secretary of Defense make it sound worse than it would be? You know what I mean? Yeah, but do you think maybe he, like, misspoke or got bad info or something? I mean... Like, have you seen the clip of Donald Rumsfeld accidentally saying... Do you know what I'm about to say? He accidentally says that, like, we did it, referring to 9-11. Well... Do you think it could be a similar situation where it's just a dude who, like, misspoke and... I mean, he, he... 
potentially could have misspoken, but I'm inclined to believe that an assistant secretary of defense at a congressional hearing would be given the correct information. He would be <laughs> saying the right thing I because mean, 1966, like functional alcoholism was just kind of accepted. Like shit was fucking it's wild. A different right time. It was a different time. I don't know. I hope you're, well, I don't hope you're right. Yeah. I, I would <laughs> prefer it to be a training uh, utensil that's at the bottom of the sea. But honestly, you know, why my question is like if it was really a training exercise which is like another thing it might not have actually been a training exercise right if it wasn't then it wouldn't it have been armed yeah and if it was a training exercise just going off of the official story like why the fuck would you put like an actual nuclear bomb great question (laughs) like i have a lot of questions about (laughs) these people carrying bombs all over the u.s for why are they doing that? Oh, dude, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, again, I guess just draw your own conclusions there. Uh, the bomb was never recovered, but the government assures everyone that things are totally safe and unnatural levels of radiation have never been detected in Wausau Sound. Well, I hope they're right. Yeah. And then, um, again, just as I'm wrapping up this segment, I wanted to um, make clear that these are most definitely not the only incidents of this nature that have occurred in the United States. There are literally dozens of other nuclear mishaps um, of varying severity that have occurred throughout the history of nuclear uh, warfare. And I don't mean, I'm not including like nuclear reactor things like Three Mile Island or whatever. I, I mean like literal bombs that were like dropped or abandoned or whatever so um between here okay so uh, i was gonna make i was gonna ask you this as a question but i think i already basically told you uh go for it though what do you think the exact number of incidents involving lost nukes between 1950 and 1968 is i don't remember i think you said 20 oh it wasn't more than that you tell me man i think 20 okay you were you were close nice (laughs) 21 are declassified. Okay, so that's actually what I was going to ask you. Declassified, because it's 1967 Mm -hmm. is when this stuff is declassified, so... Well, actually, no. It wouldn't have been declassified until much, much later. Yeah, so we don't have information past 1967 at this point, correct? Like, things that were classified Um, in the 70s and 80s would have been Oh, right, yeah, 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 yeah. The most recent... You're absolutely right. I think it's 25 years. Oh, I definitely thought it was more than that. Cause I'm sure it depends on the specific project and, like, the level of security clearance and stuff. I was thinking about the JFK situation because they have to release that. <laughs> the JFK situation? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know. Is that what we're calling it? That's what I'm calling it. Because, um, uh, yeah, they released that next year, right? Oh, with the, like, CIA reports and yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. I, uh you want to get really into conspiracy so that would have been what 55 years ago yes no it would have been last like 2016 so i think that was listen to us 55 yeah 55 years yeah 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 so um anyhow we don't know but the point is there have been other nuclear mishaps since 1967 for sure Uh, a lot of them have already well 
a lot of them, as far as I know, have already been declassified. Uh, the most recent one I saw uh, was actually, I think it happens in the uh, 80s in, uh, in Arkansas, where a dude like dropped a wrench on a nuclear missile and what? it like caused a fuel leak and uh, an explosion that killed like twelve people. That's terrible. Yeah. So um, a wrench. These things happen. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, it was like a thirty-five pound wrench that okay. was like dropped like a couple hundred feet into like this like missile silo or some shit. Okay, that makes more. I was just picturing like a little hand <laughs> wrench. <laughs> like whoa. Yeah. Um. So it's freaky. It does happen. Uh. Hopefully it doesn't happen again anytime soon, and uh, if it does, I don't know if I want to know about it. Yeah, I feel like in this case, if nothing catastrophic happens, maybe ignorance is bliss. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like um, knowing that we're there just are really bombs bowing and, like, to the will of the man. I mean, a little bit. But no, I, I know what you mean, though, because, like, what's the fucking point? Like, there's a missile that almost gets detonated and takes out, like, half of the country. What's the... But didn't happen? But, like, do you, are you really better off knowing that that happened? Or would you rather just have the alternative where it's, like, you're vaporized anyway, and it doesn't affect you <laughs> after that point? Decision. That's kind of like... You know the uh, super volcano... In, the, in Yellowstone? Yeah. Yeah, the Yellowstone caldera um, is crazy, and everyone should, if you don't already know about it, look it up. It's or super scary. Or don't, if you want to live in bliss. No, if you, if you need, like, reasons to, like, move away from... Uh, the West Coast. The Northwest, yeah. Um, do you want to briefly explain? Basically... I don't want to get too off topic, but sure. All right. It's just Spark notes is that it's a massive volcano that is going to erupt eventually, and when it does, it's going to be huge. It's called a super volcano for a reason. Um, so the fallout from that is going to be, like, many, many people in the nearby areas will die. Um, ash is going to spread. Like it, nuclear winter shit, basically. yeah. It, and I read something recently that said scientists think it's going to explode within the next 50 years, which mm-hmm. is not what you want to hear. Yeah. So... To tie it back together, <laughs> to, to, to get back on the rails a little bit, um, make sure you just stay in the South where we just have serial killers and... Uh, weird, sad stories. Weird, sad stories, but no super volcanoes. No. All right. So Go. did you have any other questions? or no. is that pretty I mean, common? I have one question that I don't think you can answer. Okay. Um... Why was the plane called Keep 19? I have no fucking That's idea. It's kind of a weird Why plane. was the Enola Gay called the Enola Gay? Like, Alright, fair knows? enough. I just didn't know if there was any reasoning behind I'm that. sure it was like some weird sort of like Air Force like... Code or something. Code okay. or like folklore, like good luck symbol or something. I don't know. Oh, I was just curious because I know in World War II yeah. they named their planes like pretty goofy names or yeah. interesting names and yeah. they painted them. So I wasn't sure if that Calamity was... Calamity Jane. Yeah. Which is actually name. an awesome name. It is an awesome <laughs> name. Um, that's also the name of another bomber. Uh, but I guess that's it. Cool. Great right. job. Cool. Very interesting.
Uh, this isn't going to be a typical down-home fear story, as it doesn't take place wholly in the South. Uh, it does start there, and there are bits and pieces that are there, but it centers all around the country. Also, please be warned that you we will discuss sexual violence and satanic rituals here, so you may want to skip... Are we doing a Satanism warning now? No, I mean... I, I just wanted to make sure people have information. Uh, so <laughs> no, that's fine. The, it's just going to be mentions, though. It'll be brief. But if that'll upset you, you might want to just skip this story. Um, also, just strap in, fam, because it's going to be a wild ride. I'm so excited. I um, kind of stumbled across this story, and I recommended it to Amy. Oh, yeah. It was a good recommendation. Yeah, but so, like, I've skimmed it, and I know kind of, like, the, the bullet points, but I don't know the full like details low down yeah well we're about to find out nice. so i figured we'd start with a little uh interaction part okay. a little conversational bit if you will uh so we've known each other since we were about seven years old mm-hmm. in that time would you say you ever reinvented yourself oh yeah like probably at least like 50 thousand times That's a lot of times a bunch of times when when would you say that you did that like is there a period in your life where you found yourself doing that more frequently well i think definitely during those teenage years uh is when you're trying to kind of like figure out what your identity uh what what it will be quote unquote well, yeah and then you become an adult and you're kind of just like whatever i am who i am <laughs> yeah. yeah well it's the same for me high school for me was a time of reinvention and self-exploration my freshman year, I was a little bit of an emo kid. I had anti-establish attitude, uh, anti-establishment attitude. There we go. Uh, nice. Then I got kind of into a hippie vibe. I got very into politics. I was very free love about it. Then I got preppy, et cetera, et cetera. That period of exploration helped me begin a foundation for who I am as an adult. Like I've, I've quote unquote, found myself as an adult. Beautiful. Uh, I would argue most people think that high school is the time in as a young adult where you find yourself like you you self-explore you reinvent yeah because uh, you're in that awkward stage where you're just trying to figure out what you like mm-hmm. um and you know your friends change your clothes change your taste in music changes mm-hmm. so but what if you never wanted to leave that period of reinvention what if you never wanted to leave high school brianna stewart was convicted of defrauding the washington state public school sis- and foster care system um for $19,400. But to tell her story, I need to start with a girl named Treva Throneberry. I almost said Thornberry, but it's Throneberry. <laughs> uh, so, born to Carl and Patsy Throneberry in Wichita Falls, Texas in 1969, Treva grew up in the nearby town of Electra, Texas. She was the youngest of four girls. By high school, she was on her high school's tennis team and she waitressed at the Whistle Stop, a local hamburger restaurant. She seemed like a regular, polite 15-year-old. She was a bit shy. However, at the age of 15, she filed charges against her father for raping her. As a result, she was removed from her parents' home in 1985 and placed in the home of Sharon Gentry back in Wichita Falls, where she was born. So she stayed with her uh, while this trial was going on. I'd like to mention that Later, uh, she dropped the charges against her father. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at this time, you know, she's 15 and 16 and she's living. and se- So from the ages of 15 to 17, she's living with Sharon Gentry. And during this time, Gentry reported troubling behavior, like mummering to herself, 
writing notes about death and leaving them for her. Uh, she Sorry. also told Yentry a story about how she had been kidnapped while she was living with her parents in Electra. She said she had been blindfolded by members of a satanic cult and taken to a, an abandoned oil f- field where they performed rituals. What type of rituals? Like uh, drinking blood and dancing around her. Okay. Yeah. I, look, there's no evidence of this happening. Mm-hmm. There was a connection... Um, she was part of a church which her parents didn't like, and the church members didn't like her parents and kind of, like, backed up the rape charges, saying that she escaped and slept on the pews and stuff at night. Oh, okay. So it's there's kind of weird. I, I didn't see very much detail on that, um, but worth mentioning. So she's exhibiting this troubling behavior to this woman who has taken her in as a foster child, uh, to protect her during the trial. Mm-hmm. This woman's also a middle school, like, I think science teacher at the time. So okay. I think, like, a caring woman. She's obviously concerned. Yeah. Um, at 17, Treva spent a brief period of time in a mental hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read one article that it was because she wanted to, like, she had been talking about committing suicide. Uh, so there she was placed on multiple drugs, and those included... Xanax, uh, which you might recognize, that's an anti-anxiety <laughs> drug. Yeah. Um, a trifle, tri, sorry, trilophon, which is an antipsychotic drug, and tofranolin, trofanolin, which is an antidepressant. Do those have uh, like brand names that people might recognize? I'm not sure. I had to look these up to see what they were, so that yeah. that's kind of like. Xanax was the only one that I had heard of. Yeah, I think, like, most people are familiar with Xanax. Yeah. So she was put on this cocktail Mm -hmm. of multiple drugs, and she was diagnosed with a characterological disorder, which I've never heard of. When I looked it up, there was nothing there. It just kind of said personality disorder. Yeah, I have a degree in psychology, and I had never heard of that before. Um, Yeah. So... It, it, there was some editorialism in some of the ed- articles I read, and one of them said, like, they needed to put something down uh, to explain what her condition was. So, unclear about that diagnosis. Yeah, it's definitely not in the DSM-5. I don't know if maybe it was in one of the earlier versions of the DSM, but yeah, whatever. So, regardless of what was actually going on with her, like, it was clear that she was having some problems, um, just not not normal behavior for a 17-year-old girl. Um, She also, uh, after that period of time, she was there for five months. So after that period of time, she was sent to the Lena Pope home uh, for troubled teens in Fort Worth, Texas. So she was 17 at that time. Um, And while she was there, she enrolled at Arlington Heights High School, which was close by, so she could finish out her senior year. She graduated in 1987. Uh, just a note about the rape charges, which she eventually dropped against her father. Um, one article I read said that it was her way out of a sexually abusive home, but that her father was not the abuser, but it was her father's brother, her uncle, that mm-hmm. was. Um, her older sisters gave statements about his abuse, but I couldn't find the statements themselves. So take that as you will. Um, I read a p- part about how saying it was her father removed her from the home, whereas saying it was a family member wouldn't have taken her out of the situation. Okay. 
Because the, the uncle didn't live with them, but he did stay with them a lot. Yeah, I, I hear you. Okay. And uh, apparently the other girls had been abused. They got married very young to mm-hmm. escape the house. So, like, they were getting married at 16 to leave. Yeah. Um, so, maybe... So, basically, she just uh, she wanted to get out of the house, and the quickest way to do that would be to say that her father was sexually abusive. Exactly. Okay. Um, and there, from those statements, it would seem as though this poor young woman was being sexually abused. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the youngest also, as a reminder, she was the youngest of the sisters. So all the sisters had left and escaped the house and it was only her. So something to keep in mind as we go through her story. Uh, so in 1987, at age 18, after she graduated, Throneberry was able to leave the mental health system. So she went to go live kind of nearby in Arlington, Texas, which is a suburb of Fort Worth where she had gone to graduated high school. And she worked as a maid cleaning hotels. But that same year, she disappeared. So, pause on Treva for a minute, and back to Brianna. And the year 1997 for a moment. So, Brianna Stewart showed up in Vancouver, Washington, at a megachurch called Glad Tidings. Um, So she showed showed up there, and a secretary who worked there took her in um, to her home, and then she brought her to the local high school, Evergreen High School. Uh, There, Brianna told the principal that she was 16 and had been living in Portland, Oregon, in youth shelters. She said she was born and raised near Mobile, Alabama. Mobile. Mobile. (laughs) Mobile. Mobile. My bad, guys. My Mobile, Alabama. (laughs) Mobile, Alabama. Um, And she said that she had been raised there by her mother and her Navajo stepfather, who was a police officer, Her mom had been murdered, and after that, she lived with her stepfather. Um, After she described more sexual, or she she described sexual abuse by her stepfather, um, and that she ran away at 13 and came to the Northwest to find her biological father. So, without records or a social security number, she started as a high school sophomore. What? While Brianna seemed a little off, wearing pigtails and overalls at 16. Yeah, so Keegan's making, like, a funny face. That also was a tip-off for me. Like, I, this was 1997, so... So it sounds almost as if an older person was trying to act what they thought young people acted Potentially. Like. And, and the, uh, multiple classmates noted general awkwardness, like she was an awkward yeah. girl. But that's normal for a 16-year-old person to be With awkward. Tales. Yeah, she's not searching that. for her biological oh, father. <laughs> you know, she's got a lot of shit going on, people. Apparently. But other than that, she joined the tennis team, <clears> she <throat> acted in the school play, and she went steady with another 16-year-old named Ken Dunn. Anyway, so despite her tragic backstory and constantly being moved around from foster home to foster home in the community, she had a pretty normal life for a high schooler until she didn't. In May 1999, Brianna claimed that David Gambetta, the father of the household she was staying at, had been spying on her through cameras in the lights and was making tapes of her as she undressed. Okay. After an investigation proved that these accusations were false, she was kicked out, but she maintained that she had been telling the truth. The mark of trouble began here. There were some other notes about how she started feeling alienated from friends. She was getting anxious about grades. Um, But to me, this theory of having someone spy on you through the lights... Mm-hmm. Seems extra paranoid. Yeah, it's definitely like very sort of uh, 
I don't want to like say textbook because I think that's an obnoxious term to use, but it's like very classic, um, like super paranoid, delusional sort of things. So yeah, yeah, not not a normal reaction. Yeah, there there's a lot of ways you can spy on people. It's definitely possible for you to put like cameras and stuff in light fixtures or things like that, but like. Who would be doing that? Why, like, who would have... In back in the 90s, it, that wasn't... It wasn't like you could just go on Amazon.com and, like, order crazy micro cameras and stuff. And leave creepy reviews for them. Right. Um, throw back to our last episode. But, anyway, back on track here. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so, before I continue, what is the connect here between Triva and Brianna? You may have guessed it, but they're the same woman. So pause on that, uh, just so you know. That means that this woman showed up saying she was 16 at the age of 28. Oh my God, really? Yeah. I didn't know it was that much. Yeah. Wow. It's a it's 12 years. It's a 12-year age difference. That's so whack. So let's think about Ken Dunn. They went to the prom or high school dance together. Uh, yeah. So just like kind of, kind of an unusual... How did this dude not realize that she was, like, 30? I actually looked at some pictures of her, and she did not look like she had aged much. Uh And maybe the whole intent of the pigtails and the overalls to look younger may have influenced that. But she ended up graduating Evergreen at the age of 30, but in disguise as 18. The American dream. In 2000. So, what happened in the 10 years between Treva's disappearance in 1987 and uh, Brianna's appearance in 1997? Well, Treva Thornberry... Oh, my bad. Throneberry. Game of Throneberries. Game of Throneberries. See, that's how you can remember that's it. That's good. Uh, so, Treva used at least 18 different teenage aliases in the span of 10 years. So that's a lot in my mind. Um, from Oregon to Idaho to Louisiana, back to Texas to North Carolina, she just po- kept popping up. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple <clears throat> of stories of her time there, but I, I felt like it was just going to be too long. So I picked out two. Okay. Um, so in 1995, she was called out by a staffer at a residential treatment center where she was staying, um, who was from Electra. So the staffer grew up in the same town that she disappeared from in 1987. Oh, wow. She recognized her. And also the the background, like, she used a very similar background that she did with Brianna, where it was, like, a made-up story, and she was a homeless teenager. Um, so she recognized what in 19... What are the 19- chances? I mean, a pretty, pretty slim, although this was in, uh, this was in Texas, so it wasn't... Because she did return to Texas for a little okay. bit. So I, I'm pretty sure that this was near Dallas. Okay. Uh, so at this time in 1995, she would have been 26, saying that she was 16. Okay. Um, so this woman um, notified the proper authorities. Um, and I think it was her social worker who confronted who was the woman who was I think at this point her name was Kara mm-hmm. she confronted Kara with the evidence and then she denied it and soon she disappeared and then 
1996, Treva was jailed for providing a false report to law enforcement in Altoona, Pennsylvania. But after she was released from jail, uh, she disappeared again under the alias that she was using there. Although I did read one article that said, you know, when she was jailed, she was fingerprinted. And because of her fingerprinted, her fingerprint matched Treva, uh, they put her in contact with Treva's parents. And she denied knowing them, said, sorry, this is a mix-up. Um, and at that time, they had already paid for a funeral. Like, they thought that she wow. was... Yeah. Wait, so she... So, just... I want to make sure I'm understanding everything. So, in Electra, Texas, back in the 80s, right? 1987, she disappeared. From Electra, Texas? Yes. And then, so, she disappeared, and I guess her family presumed that she was dead? Yeah, that's... Um, so, one of the sisters was like, oh, I never thought she was dead. Um, we just thought that she had left and wanted to live a quiet life away from... The, the uncle and like yeah. the weird home situation. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, and it may, be, it may not have been a funeral. It could have been like collecting on her life insurance. I just remember that they basically presumed that she was gone because they, they hadn't heard from her again mm-hmm. until 1995. Or I'm sorry, 1996 in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, and she just basically denied it. She was like, I don't know who you are. You're confused. Um, and then hung up on them essentially. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's pretty nuts. Um, so back to 2000, after Brianna's graduation from Evergreen High School, she worked over the summer to get a social security number while prepping for college in the fall. Her dream to eventually become a lawyer. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, her thumbprint was required for the application. That thumbprint was Brianna's undoing. Mm -hmm. It linked her directly to Treva and she was arrested for theft and perjury in 2000. Wow. She was assigned a public defender but she fired him to represent herself. Classic. She had been, had to be examined to be deemed contempt for court. Um, so she was. And she defended herself. Wait, did you say competent? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> she was deemed to be in contempt. <laughs> Two, <laughs> Two very different things. Apologies. Yes, she was competent to go to court. Um, and then she chose to defend herself rather than use a public defender. So uh, she argued she was Brianna Stewart that the thumbprint was a mix-up, and that the DNA, which they used as evidence, um, Mm. they tested her father, um, and the DNA ended up being like a 90, in the 90% Yeah. Like, it's never 100%. They always say it's like 99.9873. Yeah. So it was like very clear that they were related from the DNA. So she said the thumbprint was a mix-up, and the DNA that they tested uh, was tampered with. And she kept saying, like, they must really want their daughter back, but I'm not her. Um, So it was a pretty quick case. It was, like, three days. And then um, she was sentenced to three years in prison. But she... What was she actually, like, convicted of? uh, It was theft and perjury. Okay. Um, Because she was was, lying on uh, forms to get, uh, like, welfare? It was, though... It was the public school system mm-hmm. and it was the foster care system yeah because you can't just be an adult yeah. taking advantage of that shit. yeah because yeah. she was at this time 30 years old and she had been living in washington for the past four three years so she had been there for three years okay. so it was basically like a fraud gotcha case. so gotcha. um a theft from the state so throughout the trial her sentencing and her release 
Uh, she maintained that she was slash is Rihanna Stewart, not Treva Thro Throneberry. Um, and she's very adamant about it. Uh, she hasn't spoken out publicly since 2003 in an interview with Primetime after she was released. Although I did come across a forum discussing her case and there was a comment from someone who called themselves a concerned friend. Like that was the username, concerned friend. Okay, wait, what forum was it? I don't remember the name, but I was hoping we could link to it. Um, so people yeah, could like, read it yeah, for themselves? Yeah, we can definitely put that in. The, uh, um, just breaking the fourth wall for a quick second. Okay. We'll, we'll put that in the uh, description of the episode. So on iTunes, you can find the link there. And, I mean, I'm sure we'll put it on the Facebook group, too. Yeah, because it was um, – let me tell you about the comments. So it was a, someone called a concerned friend. And to me, reading it, and also other people on the board, apparently, it sounded like it could be her. Basically, it was like there's multiple paragraphs long. So it discussed her case, and there mm -hmm. were people being like, oh, that's so sad, et cetera, et cetera. And then it got to this comment, which was like massive. It was a massive comment, right. basically like defending Brianna Stewart and saying that like stuff had been tampered with. Yeah. So directly under that comment was another comment from someone who went to Evergreen High School saying like, hey, it's okay, like, we feel sorry for you, but, like, you need to own up, mm -hmm. essentially. So that's the only, and I think that was a 2004, maybe 2005 forum. Mm -hmm. um, she's still alive. She still lives in Washington, but she has not commented publicly. But she maintains that she's Brianna Stewart. She has an ID under that name mm -hmm. um, with the age that Brianna Stewart would be. So What? Yeah. How is that possible? I don't. How do like what do you submit no. to on those applications? Like, they need a social. You know, like getting a driver's license is a pain in the ass. It's not like you can just put like I was really born in nineteen eighty two. Well, whatever. it could be like a name change. Like I'm not sure how she went. About like she went it. through the process to change her name. Okay. Quite but but the age, like I wouldn't think you could change I don't that. Know. Well, there was only one article that I read that said that the ID was her age code, so she could just be telling people that she is Brianna's age okay um, so got it one weird thing that i wanted to mention from the story was that her boyfriend from evergreen ken the guy that she dated when she was 12 years older than him uh-huh uh sold the film rights to <laughs> his story regarding her oh god so he will make 50 or uh, i'm sorry uh, seventy-five thousand dollars from it did he press any charges against her no i didn't read that at all i mean she didn't go to jail um and they had broken up i i forgot to include this but they had broken up good um her senior year or i guess both of their senior years because they were the senior they remained friends but they broke up and i actually it's kind <laughs> of like they remain friends yeah they remain friends <laughs> oh they, they, i mean i don't know if they're still friends now but they were friends after they broke up in high school uh but one thing that I thought was strange. <laughs> high school slash like extra high school. Extra extracurricular high school. But so she, she, they like broke up because he got a main part in a play and he became really popular. And like she said, like she said in an interview, like he became like, too important for me. Maybe I got too fat for him or something. Uh, I thought the whole thing was really weird. Also, like, what 90s high school were you going to where being the lead in a play made you really popular? That's pretty cool. I mean, it is cool. I was a theater kid in high school. <laughs> that was definitely not how it was. Um, so I thought that was really weird. Um, no comment. Yeah, no comment. No comment. <laughs> All right. So anyway, Treva Thone... Anyway, Treva 
Throneberry slash Brianna Stewart. To some, a con woman. To others, someone truly confused about her identity. Yeah. As I said, high school is often a place for reinvention. It's possible that Treva never wanted to stop self-exploring, reinventing, and seeing what was possible. But Evergreen seems to be the closest she got to adulthood between 1987 and 2000 because she had a plan to get a social security number. She wanted to attend college. She looked like she was finally making the transition from high school to adulthood. What do you think? Um, I don't think it counts as a transition to adulthood when you're already an adult. I mean, and if, like, you're at, if you're at a state of like, if your state of arrested development is like that severe, really, I, I don't think she would have been able to succeed. Like, I'm going to go to college and get a law degree. Okay, that's like what? Like a six to eight year commitment minimum, including undergrad. So, um, like, I think that what would have happened is she might have gotten to that point and realized that she just wanted to continue assuming aliases and trying to con the system and in order to get benefits. We also don't know if, like, her application for college or for the social security card was necessarily like um with the most benign of intentions she may have had to do that in order to secure continued benefits mm, of some I, sort see, i don't know because like in my mind here she is she she assumed 18 different identities mm-hmm. and traveled all over the country and she kept moving often staying in a place for only a year or two whereas here she stayed for three years and she kind of looked like she was putting down roots with like a plan to go to college mm-hmm. um, and like a plan for her future. Like she, she made it to graduation. Whereas the others were, she was always a 16 year old girl. Mm-hmm. But I just wonder if that may have been more of an uh, adaptive decision. Fair. You know? Yeah. Like, cause you can only pretend you're 16 for so long. That's true. Eventually 30 is going to roll around the corner and you're going to like have to pretend that you're 17. Or, you know what I, mean? I mean, when she w- when Brianna was eighteen, mm-hmm. Treva was thirty. So when she got arrested, she was thirty one mm-hmm. technically. I think. Oh, okay, cool. Well, like, I don't know. Do you feel bad for her? Do you feel like she's a villain or so, like a sympathetic character? Or? I think that she is a con woman, but not with malicious intent. So I think, like, yes, she conned people out of money she conned people out of the kindness of their homes she conned the school system but i don't think it was like her being like oh i'm gonna make so much money and take advantage like i truly Mm -hmm. think that she has some identity issues like she definitely is mentally unwell she did spend time in a mental institution until she turned 18 and then basically escaped um so there's in my mind something clearly unresolved for her um, and the fact that she stuck with Brianna Stewart after her arrest, after, uh-huh. like, like she never changed her name again. She still lives in Washington, like, which is the same state that Brianna Stewart went to high school in. She maintains that she's Brianna Stewart. Like, she just refuses to acknowledge the other stuff. So to me, like, it kind of seems like this was the life where she finally felt comfortable enough to move past the threshold of, like, 18 years old and move into being an adult and set down roots and, like, put all of this behind her. Because it seems like she had, like, other than the light bulb fixture stuff and, like, some of the weird anxiety stuff Mm -hmm. that happened her senior year, it kind of seemed like she was on the right track, you know? Yeah, and she's definitely... 
she doesn't seem like dangerous no except except for like the hooking up with uh underage kids i think that's inappropriate i also it's, forgot it, to add yeah, it. she did yeah. say that a vancouver security guard raped her uh-huh. um and he ended up like the charges were dismissed but after he said that he did it um, oh really yeah and then like it ended up being dismissed i don't i didn't read too much into that she ended up pressing charges but then the charges were dropped so I wonder if she dropped the charges because well yeah that would have yeah. been it right yeah that's how dropping charges works yeah so, but like but she probably me, did that because they were like all right well we need to get like full like you evidence know, and your like address and your name yeah. and age and everything so uh so to me like the continual lying about her experiences and like her coming back to sexual assault and mm-hmm. sexual violence. Um, there's something there. Do you know what I mean? Like it's I, like she no, yeah. had this experience as a child that made her who she was. Um, right. And it was unfortunate, of course, that she had to experience any like sexual assault. Any she, she was a child, and mm-hmm. but I do think that that had an influence on her moving forward and assuming all of these identities, which all yeah. brought up sexual there, there assault. There are many, many people, sadly, in in this country who experience sexual assault and do not go and create a myriad of false identities and use it to manipulate people. Yeah. I'm not saying what she did was right, but I do have, like, I do feel bad for her. Like, yeah. And it's clear to me, like, I can see... Oh, like I don't really truly understand why she did it, but I I get trying to find who you are, reinventing yourself, because like we all do that in a much smaller scale way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of get it, but I, she's living now like a she hasn't been arrested, like no issues since she was released as Brianna Stewart. I'd be so curious to see, like, what she's doing. Like, does she have a job? Like, where does she work? I could find nothing. There were a couple of people who wrote comments on, like, different articles about her saying that they knew her. Um, But, like, nothing from her. (laughs) Doesn't sound very solid. (laughs) Yeah, that's why I didn't really bring anything they set up. Gotcha. Um, But, yeah, it seems kind of like she's living, like, a peaceful life as Brianna Stewart. So... Cool. Yeah, this story to me was really crazy. It is crazy. Um, I feel bad for her, but I'm glad that there was no violence and no, like, malintent on her behalf. Like, you know what I mean? She She's not a dangerous person in the sense of violence. I just think she yeah. can be dangerous in the sense of manipulation. Right. This is Keegan with a quick update for this last segment. After we recorded, Amy went home and she actually found a article that showed that Brianna had actually been involved in another false sexual assault allegation in June of 2016. Unfortunately, she may not really be as much on the straight and narrow as we thought. That article is linked in the episode description, and you can view it for yourself there. So, 
Apologies about that. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. All right, so that's it for episode eight of Down Home Fear. The next episode is going to be Southern Spectres 2. Uh, the first Supernatural-themed show uh, that we did for DHF seemed to be really popular, so I've decided to do another one. We'll most likely feature... Um, and another new special guest and or Amy, if she wants to come Sweet. back. You know, I like ghost stories. Yeah, man. So um, be sure to keep an eye out for that. Uh, be sure to join the Facebook group. Be sure to rate and review on iTunes. And if you have story ideas, send them to me at downhomefear at gmail.com or on the Facebook page. I am continuing to look for more info about Derek Todd Lee. I put a little blurb at the end of one of the older DHF episodes just saying that I am looking for information about this guy. So if you have any documentaries or books or um, even newspaper articles that you want to recommend uh, regarding Derek Todd Lee, who was a serial killer from Baton Rouge in the early 2000s, I would uh, definitely love to know about it. Um, I am going to be traveling over the next, uh, week or so, so the next episode is going to be up a few days later than usual, so I'm just apologizing in advance for that. I'm going to the southwestern United States, I'm going to spend some time in Arizona, um, not directly in the south, but maybe some stories from there will make it into the show, because I'm staying in, uh, allegedly some very haunted locations. That'll be cool. Yeah. <laughs> So thanks for joining us. I can't tell you how much we appreciate your support. It's super fun to see what areas of the country and of the world uh, people are downloading from. It's really, really cool to, um, to see. So thank you so, so much. Uh, my name is Keegan. I was joined by... Amy. <laughs> Were you not ready for it? Hi. <laughs> She's still there. I'm here. Thank you so much for having me. I love doing this. This is so much fun. Cool. Um, and, you know, be sure to join us for episode nine, which, again, is going to be another supernatural-themed show. All right. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>